0: Chapter 2 of The Life of David Brainerd by John Stiles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2. His going to college, the state of college at that time, the revival there, religious zeal, the danger of a zeal not according to knowledge, Brainerd's case, the painful result, the rector and superiors of Yale College dangerous to offend some men, an unforgiving spirit, the use which a real Christian will make of persecution and hatred. The most essential qualification for ministerial office is personal religion, and it is justly expected from the man of God that he should be eminently holy. A graceless minister is the most shocking character in the world, and a minister whose religion is doubtful, whose spirit and conduct demand every allowance which the most liberal Christian charity is disposed to make, will never be extensively useful or exceedingly happy. Those ministers who have been, quote, burning and shining lights, end quote, in the world, have been men taught of God who have seen in their hearts as in a glass the dreadful depravity of human nature, They have been led through the deep waters, and their souls have been exercised with severe spiritual trials. An attentive observer will easily perceive in the preceding account, which Mr. Brainerd has written, of the painful exercises of his mind, and the manner in which he was led to embrace the Savior, that the Lord was preparing him for great usefulness, and that he was designated by the head of the church to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the broken in heart, and to open the prison to them that are bound." That this was to be his delightful employment, he was himself convinced, and in the beginning of September 1739, when he was a little more than 21 years of age, he entered himself as a graduate at Yale College in New Haven. Previous to this, as his diary just quoted informs us, he had spent some time with Mr. Fisk, his pastor and friend, and after his death with his brother, and was thus, in some measure, prepared for the studious employment of a college life. But how different is the situation upon which our young friend now entered from that which he recently left? Yale College, when it was honored with Brainerd as a student, was certainly not very eminent for the personal religion of its sons. Indeed, constituted as most colleges are, in which personal experimental religion is not the quote, sine qua non end quote, of admission, they must sometimes reckon among their members the gay and the fashionable, the thoughtless and the vain. And when there is not religious principle to restrain from vice, the natural propensities of the human heart will, in spite of legal strictness and discipline, sometimes be gratified, and the contagious breath of iniquity sometimes inhaled. At his first going to college, and during his residence there, the righteous soul of Brainerd was grieved, And perhaps the folly he was daily witnessing around him had no small share in depressing his animal spirits and feeding the melancholy which too often preyed upon his mind. Surrounded as he was by these temptations, however, he caught none of their influence. In this unfavorable situation, he was enabled to maintain the life of religion in his own soul, and his holy deportment had a tendency to suppress levity and sin in his fellow students. Happy the man who thus lives and acts while at a university college, or a dissenting academy. He prevents a thousand stings of conscience, and his future ministry is not clogged, nor his life embittered by the sigh of painful recollection. Let students in general compare their college diary with Brainerd's and be humbled. In January 1739-40, to the measles spread much in college, and I, having taken the distemper, went home to Haddam. But some days before I was taken sick, my soul mourned the absence of the Comforter. It seemed to me all comfort was gone. I cried to God, yet found no relief. But a night or two before I was taken ill, while I was walking alone and engaged in meditation and prayer, I enjoyed a sweet, refreshing visit from above, so that my soul was raised far above the fear of death. Oh, how much more refreshing this one season was than all the pleasures that earth can afford. After a day or two, I was taken with the measles and almost despaired of life, but had no distressing fears of death. However, I soon recovered, yet by reason of hard studies, I had little time for spiritual duties. My soul often mourned for want of more time and opportunity to be alone with God. In the spring and summer following, I had better advantages for retirement and enjoyed more comfort. Though indeed my ambition in my studies greatly wronged the vigor of my spiritual life. Yet, in the multitude of my thoughts within me, God's comforts delighted my soul. One day in particular, in June 1740, I walked in the fields alone and found such unspeakable sweetness in God that I thought, if I must continue still in this evil world, I wanted always to be there to behold God's glory. My soul dearly loved all mankind and longed exceedingly that they should enjoy what I enjoyed." It seemed to be a little resemblance of heaven. In August following, I became so disordered by too close application to my studies that I was advised by my tutor to go home and disengage my mind from study as much as I could, for I began to spit blood. I took his advice, but being brought very low, I looked death in the face more steadfastly. The Lord was pleased to give me a sweet relish of divine things, and my soul took delight in the blessed God. Saturday, October 18th, in my morning devotions, my soul was exceedingly melted for and bitterly mourned over, my exceeding sinfulness and vileness. I never before felt so deep a sense of the odious nature of sin. My soul was then unusually carried forth in love to God and had a lively sense of God's love to me. And this love and hope cast out fear. October 19th, in the morning, I felt my soul hungering and thirsting after righteousness. In the forenoon, while I was looking on the sacramental elements and thinking that Jesus Christ would soon be set forth crucified before me, my soul was filled with light and love, so that I was almost in an ecstasy. My body was so weak I could hardly stand. I felt at the same time an exceeding tenderness and most fervent love towards all mankind, so that my soul and all the powers of it seemed as it were to melt into softness and sweetness. This love and joy cast out fear, and my soul longed for perfect grace and glory. Tuesday, October 31st. I had likewise experience of the goodness of God in shedding abroad His love in my heart, and all the remaining part of the week my soul was taken up with divine things. I now so longed after God and to be freed from sin, that when I felt myself recovering and thought I must return to college again, which had proved so hurtful to me the year past, I could not but be grieved, and I thought I had much rather have died. But before I went, I enjoyed several other sweet and precious seasons of communion with God, wherein my soul enjoyed unspeakable comfort. I returned to the college about November 6th, and through the goodness of God felt the power of religion almost daily. November 28th. I enjoyed precious discoveries of God and was unspeakably refreshed with that passage, Hebrews 7, verses 22, 23, 24, so that my soul longed to wing away for the paradise of God. I longed to be conformed to God in all things. Tuesday, December 9th. God was pleased wonderfully to assist and strengthen me, so that I thought nothing should ever move me from the love of God in Christ Jesus my Lord. Oh, one hour with God infinitely exceeds all the pleasures of this lower world. Let it not be supposed, while this heavenly young man was cherishing in his bosom the ardent flame of divine love, that he was a negligent student of literature and theology. No. While he was superior to all in personal religion, he yielded to none in his ardor after literary and valuable attainments. Indeed, he mourns over, quote, ambition in his studies as his most easily besetting sin, end quote. And this is never the sin of the negligent or the idle. It is the fault of an active mind, which from its natural temperature indulges to excess in a laudable pursuit. Too strong an attachment, even to the sciences and literature, may prove injurious to the growth of vital holiness. But the indolent and trifling are in no danger from this quarter. Yet if Brainerd erred it was in this, For he complains that he grew more cold and dull in matters of religion by means of this, which he calls his old temptation. Thus it is evident that while his religion was cultivated, the great business of his studies was not neglected. It is a great blessing when the metron Ariston, the golden mean, can be preserved, but in everything there is a danger. Quote, Hold thou me up, and I shall be safe, end quote, should be the prayer of every Christian, and especially of every minister. About this period, the light which had shone with so much brightness in the British churches darted its rays across the vast Atlantic, and gladdened with its genial influence the American colonies. Whitefield, who was, for no country but a world, who pitied the miserable of every clime and felt divine compassion for the whole family of man, whose capacious soul, filled with the Redeemer's love, traversed in idea every religion of the earth, and which actually accomplished more than the most sanguine imagination could suppose it was in the power of humanity to grasp. Whitefield, the glory of the Church in modern times, rushed with eagerness, impelled by celestial zeal, to disperse the gloom and moral darkness which covered America. The plaintive call of ministry, quote, come over and help us, end quote, thrilled through his heart. He obeyed the summons. America, thou canst tell with what success. With other places visited by this astonishing man, Yale College and New Haven can witness the amazing power and efficacy of the word of truth uttered by him. As an instrument in the divine hand, he inspired new life into the students, who were growing dull and lukewarm, and awakened and roused others who never felt before. The labors of this eminent servant of God with those of another who had imbibed his spirit, Mr. Tennant, carried on, for it was before partially begun, what is called in America to this day, quote, the revival, end quote. A general reformation, a deep seriousness, pervaded the various ranks of society. Yale College now presented a new and different scene, and there was an almost universal inquiry among the heretofore careless and indifferent quote, What must we do to be saved? End quote. Oh, with what delight and with what earnestness did Brainerd visit his fellow students! How sweetly and solemnly did he help forward by conversation and prayer the work of God! Dr. Hopkins, who was at college with him, has left a testimony of his zeal and brotherly kindness in the memoirs of his own life, extracts from which were published in the Evangelical Magazine for May, 1806, quote, the persons who thus distinguished themselves in zeal, that is, in visiting the students for conversation and prayer, were two of them my classmates, Buells and Youngs. The other was David Brainerd, end quote. We are now drawing near an important era in Brainerd's history, and we are about to transcribe a page upon which, in the course of his life, he frequently dropped the silent tear of sorrow and bitter regret, but a page which his unfeeling persecutors must have read with the blush of conscious shame. It is the page which narrates his expulsion from college and the cause which produced it. We must not be surprised, if on closely investigating the best human character, the delightful vision be sometimes crossed with a cloud, or the finished picture marred with a blemish. In a young man, let us not expect that knowledge of his own heart and of the world, which, if we have patience with him, he may discover in maturer years. That Brainerd was eminently pious and exceedingly zealous, who will question? That his zeal sometimes carried him beyond the bounds of prudence was his misfortune, and in a great measure proceeded from the circumstances in which he was placed. It is exceedingly difficult, for young persons especially, to distinguish the wild fire of the passions from the lambent flame of that holy zeal which is lighted at the altar of divine love, and it is not unfrequently the case that these two things, so different in their nature, are blended in the same heart. We have reason to suspect that our zeal is adulterated with this corrupt mixture if it border on uncharitableness, if it incline us to make our frames and feelings the standard of all true experimental religion. There is more spiritual pride in this than we are at first aware. We should ever remember that the divine flame of zeal in this resembles the natural flame. The higher it rises, the more it trembles. In the general revival of religion, of which we have already spoken, some tares of a mistaken zeal grew up with the wheat and Brainerd was not wholly free from their influence. The manner in which he displayed his imprudent ardor and its consequences are thus related by his biographer, Jonathan Edwards, whose praise is in all the churches. Quote, In the time of the awakening at college, several students associated themselves who were wont freely to open themselves one to another. Mr. Brainerd was one of this company. And it once happened that he and two or three more of these his intimate friends were in the hall together, after Mr. Whittlesey, one of the tutors, had been to prayer there with the scholars. No other person now remaining in the hall, but Mr. Brainerd and these his companions. Mr. Whittlesey, having been unusually pathetical in his prayer, one of Mr. Brainerd's friends asked him what he thought of Mr. Whittlesey. He made an answer, he has no more grace than his chair. One happening at that time to be near the hall overheard those words, though he heard no names mentioned and knew not who the person was, which was thus censured. He informed a certain woman who went and informed the rector who sent for the man and examined him, and he told the rector the words that he heard Brainerd utter and informed him who were in the room with him at that time upon which the rector sent for them. They were very backward to inform against their friend of that which they looked upon as private conversation, yet the rector compelled them to declare what he said and of whom he said it. Brainerd thought that what he said in private was injuriously extorted from his friends, and that it was injuriously required of him to make a public confession before the whole college in the hall, for what he said only in private conversation." He not complying with this demand and having gone once to the separate meeting at New Haven when forbidden by the rector and also having been accused of saying concerning the rector that he wondered he did not expect to drop down dead for fining the scholars who followed Mr. Tennant to Milford, though there was no proof of it, and Mr. Brainerd ever professed that he did not remember his saying anything to that purpose. He was expelled, the college, end quote. The circumstances of this expulsion are peculiarly disgraceful to the college and exhibit the tutors in no very favorable point of view. A junior student, having acquired the infernal trick of tail-bearing, communicated what he had overheard in a private conversation, and the tutors, as if on the alert to seize the victim, instantly called together the gentlemen, the particular friends of Brainerd, and wrest from them by threats the ill-fated sentence, with its application, and then proceed against its author as against a, quote, thief and a robber, end quote. I pity the students who could be awed by the threats of such men to disclose the subject of a familiar conversation. Above all, I pity the meanness of these, quote, little governors, end quote, which involved them in the guilt of a transaction so dishonorable and base. And on the above account, I would only remark that if the circumstances and exigencies of the college at that time justified the severity of the superiors, On what principles of Christian charity and kindness are we to account for their subsequent and persevering hostility to a man, who sinned but once, and that in word only, and whose whole life was so blameless, so holy, that the enemies of religion, as well as its friends, pronounced him blessed? Some men are deadly in their hate and so marvelously wise that they can decide on a man's character from one or two words and actions." And though the whole tenor of his general spirit and conduct forever gives the lie to their conclusion, their decision is like the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. For such persons to forgive an offending brother seven times would be torture little less than crucifixion. And as for the, quote, 70 times seven, end quote, it is one of the passages they would willingly blot from the book of God. My soul, come thou not into their secret, until their assembly mine honor be not thou united. Brainerd had infinitely the advantage of these cruel governors. From the eater he extract honey, and from their persevering opinion he learned a lesson of prudence. He was more weaned from the world, more entirely devoted to God, and his work as a missionary of Jesus. And this is the improvement which every good man will make of unfeeling persecution and hostility. End of chapter two.